0: maybe the right word is, um, I'm quite surprised that uh, Aronson could take so many pages to talk about cognitive dissonance. Um, how many pages is this chapter? It's a lot. Yeah, I I only got about halfway through it. Uh, yeah yeah he goes it's one eighty one to two fifty one so that's seventy pages. Good gracious, you don't need seventy pages for cognitive dissonance in any in my world at least okay um And I've got some, uh, I was reading through this, and I started to get some uh, some kind of, uh, I'm not entirely happy with this chapter. But anyway, uh, first of all, any uh, questions, comments? Um, I haven't been able to look at your exams yet. I do have your quizzes that I can distribute uh, during the break. Um, anything in particular you want to talk about here
1: And especially people in primitive communities, there are all kinds of rationalizations besides just having a needing to make sure that you're really sane and you still have a positive. I mean, if if danger, serious danger, has happened in door, then
0: there's every likelihood that it will happen to you as well. If, is there uh, any more likelihood than there was before the danger happened, though? That's the question. <laughs> you, yeah. You need to justify some irrational fear. Yeah. You know, and then there's all this stuff about, you know, the gods may be pleasant, or, you know, and, but that's the way that they've been indoctrinated, and so it's not an irrational fear there either. Okay. So, uh, so in some ways, uh, what we're dealing with is sort of common sense uh, in terms of cognitive dissonance. Uh, But uh, and 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 it also and it and it it, you're you're bringing up an uh, an important point, which is um, this idea of rational versus irrational thought, right? And so it um, one of the sort of implicit assumptions, or I might even say biases, in this approach is the idea that we are or perhaps should be, if we aren't, um, rational uh, beings. Um, and there's a there's a reasonable argument to be made for um, for in in favor of being a rational being. Um, perhaps it helps you make better decisions. Perhaps it helps you um, survive and adapt better. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily mean that irrational beings or irrational thought necessarily results in bad decisions or in maladaptive behaviors. So that's one of the um, issues that came up for me in reading this on page 187. He says, where is it, uh, in the first paragraph there, um, third sentence, occasionally, however, the need to reduce dissonance, uh, the need to convince oneself that one is right or good leads to behavior that is maladaptive and therefore irrational. So you make a decision and it may conflict what you might that done. What and a good so person would do.
1: Justify, okay, I did that because of these situations.
0: Yeah, so it's justifying yourself, and why justify yourself? Because you want to feel good about yourself. Um, there are a lot of um, practical benefits to maintaining good self-esteem, high self-esteem. And so uh, you want to feel good about yourself, and that helps you in a, lot of, in, in a variety of ways. That's a very adaptive behavior. My issue, though, is with the notion that maladaptivity uh, maladaptive decisions are, according to uh Aronson, by definition irrational. And uh that's that's a really fallacious I feel like that's a really fallacious um, uh statement. I can I can uh I can imagine a number of adaptive behaviors that are uh, rational or, um, I'm sorry, that are irrational. They don't occur necessarily as a product of rational thought, right? So, there's, uh, you know, a few issues that kind of came up for me in reading this, yeah? Yeah. So yeah, it doesn't necessarily work the other way around. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Good logic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, because he says uh, maladaptive is therefore irrational, it doesn't necessarily mean that irrational is always maladaptive either. Yeah. Um, but it. I, you know, I feel like it. In some ways, it kind of makes that implication too. Um So um, so really, one of the, one of the um, I guess I'll call it a dichotomy um, or a contrast he'll make is um, that he'll, he'll see a difference between these two things. rationalizing beings and rational beings. So we create rational explanations post hoc for our behaviors, right? or our attitudes. So that we can rationalize um, those behaviors. So rationalization is one of these things that we use to manage the um, uh, the uh, aversive arousal that we re- that results from cognitive dissonance. Um, he also talks about this idea. Uh, on page two oh six of uh, he gives the example or the research of um, uh, the data from Mill's experiment. Are Provoc Mills's experiment are provocative indeed. One thing they suggest is that the most zealous opponents of any given position are not those who have always been distant from that position. For example, one might hazard a guess that the people who are most angry at the apparent sexual freedom associated with the current generation of young people may not be those who have never been tempted to engage in casual sexual activity themselves. Indeed, Mills's uh, data suggest um, where is it? the possibility that people who have the strongest need to crack down hard on this sort of behavior are those who have been sorely tempted or came d- dangerously close to giving into the temptation. Then he goes on to Henry Adams and his colleagues showed a group of men a series of sexually explicit erotic videotapes consisting of heterosexual male homosexual and lesbian encounters while measuring their sexual arousal um, using a device that actually uh, measures changes in the circumference of the penis to um, gauge arousal. Although most of the men showed increases in sexual arousal while watching the heterosexual and lesbian videos, it was the men with the most negative attitudes toward male homosexuals who were the most aroused by the videos depicting male homosexual lovemaking does that remind you of anything you studied in 201 or 202 talked about
1: okay
0: Okay, so they get real defensive. Does that trigger any memories of what? Anything? Defense mechanisms, good. And remember what that defense mechanism is called when you have an exaggerated opposite response to the conflict that you're experiencing. Reaction formation is what Freud called it. And one of Freud's defense mechanisms is rationalization. Right? So Freud, uh, Freud's defense mechanisms, are rationalization, reaction formation, uh, regression, projection, Uh, 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 Denial. Um, Displacement. And there's another R in there that I can't remember right now. Anyway, um, so this is, you know... These explanations are very sort of Freudian, aren't they? Are saying that any time have a negative reaction, something is No. No, because, because A sometimes happens in response to B doesn't mean that in all cases of B, A will happen. Right? Um, but according to Freud, When you have this, uh, do you remember uh, his formulation of conflict, his ideas on conflict? Where does conflict come from, he said? Or what does conflict result in, I guess is a better way to say it. So Freud uh, proposed that the personality is made up of three components. Do you remember what those are? Id. Right. The id, the superego, and the ego. And so uh, Freud proposed that the id is this um, unconscious libidinal desire, right? This you know, seething, lustful, desirous, um, socially unacceptable urges that we have that are under the surface. And we don't even have access to them. We don't even know they're there. They operate on us unconsciously, he says. And uh, the superego, meanwhile, is doing what? What's that? It wants. It wants to control the id. It says, uh, "You know what, id? Um, I know you want that big piece of chocolate cake, but we have a desire to maintain a um, boyish figure. Yes, yes. And I'm not going to let you have that cake. And so, uh, so we have this." conflict then Um, and so Freud says the ego has to then serve two masters and he says uh, the uh, the Bible I think he says the Bible uh, warns us about trying to serve two masters and it um, so what's gonna happen is the ego has to moderate or mediate I'm sorry has to mediate between these two forces and the ego is our conscious sense of self, right? Um, the superego uh, has some, is, is, we're aware of the superego somewhat, but a lot of it's unconscious too. And when the ego can't effectively mediate and decide and help negotiate between the id and the superego, it breaks down and what comes out is anxiety. And he says this uh, anxiety that is produced as a result of the ego not being able to effectively mediate between the id uh, and the superego is what leads to neurosis. And then, you know, then he talks about his therapies and things for that, free association therapy and so on and so forth. The superego, here's how he diagrams the level of consciousness of these three parts. Um, He says the id is down here. Um, And he says this is the preconscious, this is the unconscious and this is the conscious. Uh, it's, it's, we don't have necessarily um, direct access to it always like we do with the conscious, but it, it kind of pokes through into the consciousness. So the superego kind of transcends, he says, between the unconscious and the preconscious. Meanwhile, the Uh, Ego lives in the uh, conscious and the pre-conscious. So um, so what we get popping out out of this is anxiety. So this conflict, right? Does that remind you of anything? Life. (laughs) Life. (laughs) Cognitive dissonance. It's... Right. So um, so, uh, so, this is, you know, you've got two conflicting beliefs, and how do you rationalize, you know, how do you deal with those conflicting beliefs? And one of the defense mechanisms to deal with this anxiety, Freud said, is uh, rationalization. So it's no surprise that this, um, that Freudian theory kind of pops out in these ideas that are coming in in cognitive dissonance, why? Think about um, the relationship between the different uh, perspectives in psychology. Started out with the structuralist perspective and then the functionalist perspective, then the behaviorist perspective. But at the same time, the behaviorist perspective was which perspective? the psychodynamic perspective, which is the Freudian approach. And this is going to go really for um, the majority of the uh, first half, the majority of the 20th century. And so Festinger, Festinger? Festinger? Uh, he proposes his ideas about cognitive dissonance around what time? His first study is in nineteen fifty four, and uh you know his major papers on cognitive dissonance I think will be published in about nineteen fifty seven so you know that's really in the heyday of the psychodynamic period cognitive the cognitive approach to psychology is beginning to take hold uh but you know his training comes out of the psychodynamic and behaviorist perspectives so it's not a surprise then that we see this, the emergence of these sorts of ideas in the formulations of how we deal with those, um, how we deal with that dissonance. Questions on this? Mm-hmm. I hope you're struggling with this, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either, frankly. I, think, I don't think Aronson is right on that, but I don't think all maladaptive behavior is irrational. That's fine. However, in order, as a scientist, to rationally not agree with it, you're going to have to find contradictory evidence. And so far, the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of uh, the ideas in the cognitive dissonance theory. And really, that's what most of this chapter is doing, you know. He's presenting study after 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 study, demonstrating these phenomenon. And you know, that's how that's how we do it in science. That's how we make sure that we're not proposing something that isn't supported by evidence. But okay, okay. Well, all right. Well, this first story really pissed me off. <laughs> so he starts out with this scene, a young man named Sam is being hypnotized. The hypnotist gives Sam a post-hypnotic, su- you were right. Uh, <laughs> Somehow it always gets filled up. Huh? Picture, uh, a young man named Sam is being hypnotized, the hypnotized Hypnotist gives Sam a post-hypnotic suggestion, telling him that when the clock strikes 4 o'clock, he will, one, go to the closet, get his raincoat and galoshes, and put them on, two, grab an umbrella, three, walk eight blocks to the supermarket and purchase six bottles of bourbon, and four, return home. Sam is told that as soon as he re-enters his apartment, he will, quote, snap out of it, unquote, and be himself again. When the clock strikes 4 o'clock, Sam immediately heads for the closet, Dons his raincoat and galoshes, grabs his umbrella, and trudges out the door on his quest for bourbon. There are a few strange things about this errand. One, it is a clear, sunshiny day. There isn't a cloud in the sky. Two, there's a liquor store half a block away that sells bourbon for the same price the supermarket eight blocks away. And three, Sam doesn't drink. Sam arrives home, opens the door, re-enters his apartment, snaps out of his quote-unquote trance, and discovers himself standing there in his raincoat and galoshes with an umbrella in one hand, huge sack of litter bottles in the other. He looks momentarily confused." Um, and I know why he's using this example. You know, He's making the point that when we do things that we don't understand why we do them, people who do crazy things aren't necessarily crazy. We try to find reasons for them. We try to explain it to ourselves so that we can feel good about ourselves—that we're not doing wacky things all the time—and when in reality we are doing wacky things all the time. That's that's the paradox here, right? We aren't always rational beings. So, um, but here's the problem: hypnosis doesn't work this way. You can't do this with hypnosis um, and um and so he's using and he's using a parable that um, if uh you know if if we look at the evidence of what hypnosis does and what it can do, that's patently not possible yeah um uh you know and i I happen to know this because I know a little bit about hypnosis, but I also, um, uh, my fiance is a hypnotist. And so, um, uh, and I verified with her that this kind of elaborate series of behaviors isn't possible through post hypnotic suggestion. Um, And furthermore, fundamentally, you can't under post hypnotic suggestion make someone do something that is um, very contrary to their Um, self-concept. For example, you can't hypnotize somebody and tell them to murder somebody else if they're not already predisposed to murdering people. right? You can't tell somebody to go buy bourbon if they're not predisposed to drink. Um, so these are there's just some real problems in this particular opening story, and that maybe colored my um, my reading of the rest of it, but um, uh, so I wasn't too happy about that, but I did want to point out to you that that's not how uh, hypnosis works. Anything else uh, you want to bring up before we? Good. Yeah. So so that's one reason, I think, why this chapter is so long. Because it doesn't always happen. There are specific conditions that make it more likely to happen. But it it doesn't necessarily always happen. And, And so he sets up this whole series of Explanations of what those specific kinds of conditions are, where we get high levels of uh, of attitude change as a result of cognitive dissonance. Right. Um, so yeah, it you know it is a fairly complex phenomenon, and um, and there are a lot of um, there are a lot of exceptions. You know, and of course individual differences too. You know, we, we all have individual differences in terms of um, things like, for example, our need for um, certainty, the, 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 the need that, our need for um, cognition, our need for um, being able to think about ourselves and explain ourselves. So, people who have a high level of that may be more likely to do it, and people who don't maybe have a less likelihood. <laughs> Could be. Could be. All right. Um So let's uh we'll do a little bit here then we'll take a break and then uh, do a little more and see what time it is. So let's talk about uh dissonance. When I uh, go to the dictionary and I look up the definition for dissonance, I come up with the idea that it somehow lacks harmony. And this is a word typically used in music. And in fact, the Latin uh, roots here refer to uh, uh, sound. And, um, So, it's some sound that's not harmonious, typically, is how it's uh, used. But then, uh, you know, these other definitions go to the idea that it's somehow unsuitable or unusual to have these things in combination. So, if I came in here um, wearing a lime green trousers and a hot pink shirt, you would probably say that's quite dissonant, right? And then, yeah, and then I would experience some cognitive dissonance over the idea that I'm really cool versus people think I'm an idiot, right? (laughs) Um, But it still is dissonant. It's clashing, right? and so, um, so this idea then is that there's something not right here, right? There's something in combination that's not working for us. If it's working for you, then that's fine, right? The problem, I guess, is when it's not working. And so, when we talk about cognitive dissonance, then we're just talking really about two beliefs, or attitudes, or cognitions, two thoughts that are in contradiction. Now, the interesting thing is that um, oftentimes when, uh, when we're talking about things like critical thinking, um, you are encouraged to hold contradictory views in mind simultaneously and try and somehow reconcile those contradictory views, right? If you're gonna write a critical thinking paper, um, one of the objectives is to demonstrate that you can observe, um, understand, and reconcile these contradictory, perhaps contradictory viewpoints. And that's fine because they're outside the self. The problem in cognitive dissonance is when we experience um, some sort of threat to the self, threat to self-esteem as a product of these contradictory thoughts or cognitions, right? And so that's where the whole idea in uh, Aronson of self-justification comes in. We want to justify that contradiction in order to help ourselves maintain our self concept, maintain our self-esteem too. Yeah. Yes. So it's related to dissonance. Uh, so what is the relationship so the question is sort of what is the relationship between dissonance and heuristics? So if we have dissonance, then we use heuristics. Sure. Sure, one well one of one of one of the decision making processes we could use uh, in a case of cognitive dissonance is heuristics, yeah. Um, but the idea here is that in cognitive dissonance, if we do use heuristics, it is in the service of bolstering the self and the self image. Okay. All right. So let's now uh, talk about arousal. Because um, the fundamental feature here in cognitive dissonance is the idea that we experience some undesirable or aversive arousal. So um, first of all, uh, if you remember from intro psych the idea of homeostasis or equilibrium or balance. Um, The idea that we maintain, you know, our body stays for example physiologically we stay in a state of homeostasis. So I'm not too hot right now because uh I'm sweating, and that sweating is allowing my body to um, you know to uh, dissipate some of the heat. I'm not too cold right now because I'm not sweating too much right so um, so my body can adapt to these changing environmental circumstances by changing physiological responses. And if you remember um, from Intro Psych, that process is handled uh, in your brain, in your hypothalamus. So it allows this kind of uh, bodily regulation function. Similarly, um, we uh, tend to maintain a state of psychological homeostasis. And so we never want to be too anxious or too, Calm, I guess is the word, not calm, but um, unstimulated. We never want to be too stimulated or too unstimulated. We like to maintain some kind of relatively constant level of stimulation, for example. Um, And we always want to know that we can come back into homeostasis. So if, for example, you have an anxiety disorder, one of the problems is you experience that overstimulation, but you can't ever get back to homeostasis, can't ever get back to um, feeling like you're in balance. Okay. And so uh, this arousal that we experience because we're sort of out of balance or we're not, um, uh, not experiencing homeostasis will motivate us to try to restore uh, that homeostasis. And we're going to talk about motivations also a little bit later. Okay. So, when we put these two ideas uh, together, we get cognitive dissonance theory. Um, so, essentially, Festinger says when we experience uh, dissonant cognitions, so thoughts or attitudes or beliefs that contradict, uh, we experience aversive arousal and are then motivated to reduce that aversive arousal. So we get this um, uh, behavior of trying to reduce that uncomfortable arousal that gets generated. Now. Um, If, let's say, you experience dissonant cognitions and you don't become aroused over it, then you're not going to use these cognitive dissonance processes to try to reduce that arousal. It's only going to actually kick in if um, you actually experience some sort of aversive arousal or you become aversively aware of these um, uh, dissonant cognitions. You know, these dissonant cognitions can sit here Uh, in the unconscious all day long and uh, you know you may not experience that arousal but when you become aware of it and then you have to try to find a way to deal with that awareness and that uncomfortable arousal that's when we start doing self-justification behaviors to do that Um, now um, in addition to dissonant cognitions Festinger uh, Fissinger was really interested in studying um, cognitions. But we also see the same kinds of things in behaviors. When I engage in a behavior that is dissonant with my beliefs, then um, we oftentimes will get the same kind of cognitive dissonance arousal. Um, and, and, and you may actually formulate the idea of the behavior actually being a belief. The idea being that you know if you have a belief, you will engage in behavior. So, um, But just keep in mind that it, it applies to behaviors as well as uh, cognitions. Um, questions so far? Ideas, comments, suggestions?
1: Mm-hmm. Life. And it was my American grandmother, in fact. I said, please don't eat all this stuff with the sodium nitride and the, you know, all the sugar and all this stuff. And she said, well, sweetheart, everything's got that in there. I mean, if we listen to all of that stuff, you know, we'd never eat anything. You know, we would not be able to eat anything. And then she died of complications of diabetes and high blood pressure, you know, which were directly related to her. Life. And so I just,
0: you know, I just, I just made an immediate connection there when I was reading this chapter. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so the story uh, if uh, the podcast didn't pick it up so the story is the idea that um, uh, you know, people in, are engaging in uh, behaviors that they are aware of being unhealthy. They probably want to maintain um, an attitude or belief that they are people who don't live unrealistically healthy, unhealthy, right? And so somehow they have to find a way to justify, self justify um the behaviors that they're engaging in, or change the behaviors. And changing the behaviors is oftentimes harder than self justifying. So um just like you always hear from other people and you gave me this example to say whether your American great grandfather lived to be ninety and ate lard and smoked cigars. Oh yes. Anecdotal evidence is always the most powerful. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so these are ways that we try to deal with. Uh, Incidentally, uh, it took me a long time to learn this, probably um, 30 or more years uh, to learn this, but uh, my advice to you is to uh, refrain from offering unsolicited advice. (laughs) because more often than not it's going to arouse cognitive dissonance in other people and they're going to find a way to um, try to justify their behavior and sometimes that justification comes in the form of telling you you are full of crap (laughs) so so I highly I highly uh, suggest not giving unsolicited advice so Um any uh any other uh comments ideas here examples Oh yeah Oh Holocaust denial interesting Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, certainly when you looked at the Milgram uh, video that we watched, the subjects who became aware that they could potentially, you know, hurt or even kill someone else, and went into the you know went into the uh, experiment with the belief that they were good people that wouldn't do that, that awareness um, is going to create cognitive dissonance, right? Uh, incidentally, if you uh, go to my web blog, um, I link to a uh, essay written by one of the participants in the Milgram uh, experiment, uh, one of the ones who didn't uh, didn't go all the way. But uh, see so you might be interested in reading that. Let's take a break here. It's um, about five of. Uh, ah, it's getting well. You want to come back about ten after? That'll be fine. So, uh, the classic example for cognitive dissonance is um, people who smoke cigarettes. If a person who smokes cigarettes, for example, uh, has the belief that um, good people, you know, people like me, don't take unreasonable risks, uh, but also holds the belief that smoking causes cancer, um, is going to experience this uh, uh, uncomfortable arousal because of the inconsistency of these cognitions. And um, so somehow we're gonna have to find a way to decrease that aversive arousal or that uncomfortable arousal. Um, So one way to decrease that is to change their smoking behavior stop smoking. Now, any of you who have tried to stop smoking, or know someone who has tried to stop smoking, knows that that is an extraordinarily difficult uh, drug to stop using. Um, Among the addictive drugs, um, it's in the top three, along with heroin and the um, crack form of cocaine. and uh so what you're left with then if you can't change the behavior is somehow changing the cognitions and so um one way to change those cognitions is to distort your perception basically uh maybe you don't pay attention to information about health risks associated with smoking you just don't even pay attention to it don't even look at it don't even when it comes on the tv you just shut it out right Um, And that's, you know, really, in Freud's world, a form of denial, right? Um, And also, uh, you have the opportunity to distort the evidence involved, right? So you might say, well, yeah, there's all these studies saying smoke can cause cancer, but you know what? I heard a story uh, I heard a you know a study a couple years ago that said that uh you know eating tortilla chips uh, causes you to have um, colon cancer, and you know what another study two years later said tortilla chips don't cause colon cancer, so those scientists really don't know what they're talking about so you can distort the evidence um, in favor of um, uh Allowing these cognitions to stay, you know, changing one of these cognitions in order to, uh, to have them be consistent. Um, you could also change this cognition about good people don't take reasonable risks. The la- the, what you can't do, and what we won't do is say, "Well, good people don't take unreasonable risks, um, so I'm not a good person, right? Because always, we always want to maintain that um, positive image of ourselves. Right? So typically you're going to say, well, uh, maybe some good people take unreasonable risks. And I'm one of those people. Or you can jettison this cognition right, and replace it with something like, um, well, I just think um, I really want to enjoy life. Well, I'm on this planet, I'm going to enjoy life. So there's a lot of ways to try to um, manipulate these cognitions to try to bring them back into line. Um, And it's uh, surprising how many different ways that we'll do that. Um, So, uh, you know, here's here's my classic example. Um, I have a belief that I am... Uh, a very compassionate person who understands that people's circumstances are oftentimes outside of their dispositional control and they are the result of the situation more likely, right? Because I'm a social psychologist, so that's what I believe. Um, And um, I uh, also believe that, you know, I'm willing to help people uh, when they need it. So, I'm um, you know, I'm driving home from work and pull up to the um light getting on the freeway, and there's a fellow standing there with a sign that says, "You know, down on my luck, um you know anything can help, and can you spare a dime, buddy right and uh, you know, I'm like I don't really wanna stop and give this person money um so, oh, but I remember i gave I give every month to the United Way, yes, okay. Now I can go through there and not give the guy money, right? Right. Regardless of whether he's going to benefit from the United Way money or not, right? So now I can feel good about myself. Oh, I'm you know I'm caring, generous, compassionate, giving. I go home and pet my cat, and everything's fine. La la la. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, it's a very cynical kind of view of hum of human you know, of us wanting to be so selfish that, you know, we just want to uphold our own um, ego at the expense of uh, our behavior. Okay. Um. Oh. That's another cognition I could adopt. I've never tried to do it, so I don't know if that's reality or not, but. Like, what if I gave him a nickel every time i wouldn't be broke, but even I gave him a dollar uh you know uh I see him you know he's there maybe three days out of the week that's three dollars a week that's twelve dollars a month that's not much money i'm not going to go broke at twelve bucks a month. Well, you know, I happen to have a full paying job okay, so So now, yeah, so now you're dealing with the reality of the situation, yeah. Um, Okay, so, oh, I already talked about this stuff. So I take an unreasonable risk, so am I not a good person? No, I'm a good person. So maybe good people do take unreasonable risks. Um, Or I can say that smoking isn't uh, risky. So this is the process of dissonance reduction. Reducing the dissonance helps reduce the aversive arousal. And that's what we want to do. We want to take that arousal away. And uh, as I said, it's oftentimes hard to really change your behavior, or changing your behavior is so undesirable that you're going to want to change your cognitions. right? Um, and, uh, I happen to come across a, uh, comic, uh, a Dilbert comic that, um, helps make this point pretty well. Mike the Vegan. Uh, I use no animal products whatsoever. And then Dilbert says, well, your clothes were created on sewing machines that use electricity from coal and oil, and those came from dead dinosaurs. This guy says, whoa, uh. I don't wanna walk around naked, so I think I'll start making some exceptions, right? We're gonna find ways to allow us to feel good about ourselves, but still um, engage in the behaviors or the beliefs, right? All right, Where, uh, where does this whole notion come from? You know, Festinger didn't dream this up out of his imagination one day this actually came from um, you know real life and observing what happens in real life when people are faced with these um, conflicting cognitions so uh, originally Fessinger um, studied uh, doomsday cults and he was interested in the idea of what happens when you know you say the world's going to end and then it doesn't end how do you um, how do you kind of justify that or make sense of it in your own mind, right? So uh, there's a, there was a cult in the 1950s called the uh, Brotherhood of the Seven Rays. And uh, so one of the beliefs of the Brotherhood, uh, and oh, incidentally, uh, Fessinger and his colleagues uh, joined, the, um, joined the cult. And one of the beliefs of this brotherhood was that there were extraterrestrial guardians. And these guardians uh, revealed to the leader of the cult that the world uh, was going to be destroyed on December 21st. Uh, and, uh, but here's, you know, here's the good thing. If you're a member of the cult, you're going to be okay. Why? Of course, what else would happen? Um, the members would be saved by a flying saucer that would come and pick them up and take them away, right? Some of you missed the flying saucer, that's okay. It'll teach you for transcribing every little note. Um, and so uh, what they do is they um, they decide, uh, well, they're gonna give away their possessions. Uh, many of them left their spouses behind Families and uh, holed up in a house. I think it was in Colorado, and basically waited there through the winter to, uh, you know, to be saved uh, uh, before December 21st. So uh, guess what? December 22nd, 1954, does come around, and they're still there. That's going to be a problem. They didn't take the skeleton. <laughs> yeah, the Kevin's gate. Um, so they believe that the world is going to end. And um, they believed that the right thing to do was to give away their possessions. But now the world's not ending. And so something's going to have to give here. So basically, how are they going to deal with this uh, conflict? Well, first, um, Fessinger says, the members were very upset about this, um, as you can imagine. Uh, And so they've got these conflicting notions. um, And how do I reconcile this uh, idea and still maintain a good sense of self, that I'm a, you know, I'm a reasonable person that you know, uh, does good things, right? Here I've left my spouse and my family and, you know, know, and everything's all torn up, but the world's not coming to an end. Well, what happens is they get a new communication from uh, what you might call God. And this new communication uh, was that um, their uh, faith in the belief And their fortitude would be rewarded by God because then God would save the world. So that's a good thing. And in fact, their dissonance reduction came in the form of believing that they had actually saved the world by you know leaving all their families behind and their possessions and their jobs and holding holding themselves holding themselves up in this house. Right? And so Fessinger was like, wow. This is a really powerful phenomenon that people can, uh, you know, can make these really dramatic um, changes in their cognitions in order to justify um, their 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 behaviors and beliefs. Right. I don't recommend you join cults in order to research them. That's a hazardous activity because um, it's all too easy. You know. Um, the you know uh the typical cult member is actually highly educated um you know middle class um not somebody who's an idiot and irrational these are rational thinkers and cults have an amazing ability to uh to break that down so i don't recommend cults now this isn't sort of the first you know i i don't very often get to uh do I want to do this here? No, I'll do it, I'll do it a little bit later. Um, so when we look at how people make um, uh, attitude changes, what emerges in the literature are four um, basic kinds of um, changes that people will make. And some of these are covered in your book, and I think a couple of them aren't. Um, first of all, there's something called post-decisional dissonance. If we've made some kind of a decision between two options that we find you know, relatively equally appealing, um, what we will tend to do is to derogate. Um, uh, do you know uh, what that means? Anybody not know what it means? Um, to derogate something is to be derogatory is to put it down right we um, you know we say all oh, that I really didn 't want that one you know that one 's not as good as the other one, right so we derogate the unchosen item and we will praise the chosen one what 's that um, yeah. Yeah, you could. Yeah, it's probably synonymous with denigrate. Yep. I'd have to check. So uh, you know, I really want, um, really want a new car. and I really love that Honda Fit, um, but I really, really like Toyotas, and I like that Toyota. Um, what's it called? The uh, Yaris. And so um, I actually was looking at new cars a while ago, and then decided just to keep my old car. Anyway, uh, I really like these two cars, and presumably after I had bought the um, the Yaris, and had some sort of dissonance after the decision, you know, maybe didn't quite feel right about it or something, and I get that arousal, that uncomfortable arousal. Uh, you know what? Those fits, you know, they're The interior doesn't last as long as the Toyota. Yeah, that's right. Right. OK. Effort justification occurs um, when we give somebody a goal to do, and they expend a lot of effort at achieving that goal. And then they feel as if that effort really wasn't worthwhile. what they will tend to do is they will emphasize the good parts, the attractive parts of the goal, and then de-emphasize the um, unattractive features that make it not so worth it anymore. All right? Do you have any examples of these that you can think of? Right, Right. everybody always gets a great deal on the car. Yeah, yeah. But again, in order to test that experimentally, you would have to say, at the, before they bought the car, uh, you know, you would have to manipulate the price that they paid versus the price they think they should pay, right? And if they overpaid, um, what happens to their cognition about the car afterwards, right? I found that in changing jobs. Changing jobs, right. How so? I can, I have gone through and researched organizations
1: Yeah. What did I not ask? Yeah. Whatever.
0: And so then you have to okay, you know I'm asking me to be here and learn something <laughs> differently in this situation. Oh so, yes. Yeah. This is the new age idea that every every experience is a gift. Yes, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's a great justification, yeah. That I found wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because of this, this, and this. And just start really trying to find a way to justify it. Yeah, you want to feel good about yourself. Yeah. That's a reasonable thing to do in an unreasonable way, I guess. Yeah. Um, Cooper and Fazio uh, also described two other types of attitude change that they see. One is um, what they'll call insufficient justification. So if I give you some small amount of money, for example, to perform a task that is really undesirable, um, and then I ask you later, um, what'd you think of that task, uh, you will tend to say that um, the task was pretty, was pretty, was pretty nice. Right. It was a good. It was a good task. I, I really liked the uh, development of my hand-eye coordination as I moved these pegs for an hour, from one tray to another. That was really beneficial to me. Um, and then insufficient deterrence occurs. They said um, when we keep ourselves from doing some sort of desirable task um, because of some sort of small punishment or some sort of small deterrent, um, what we will tend to do is um, emphasize the unattractive uh, features of the task. So I didn't do that, not because I had this small deterrent, I didn't do it because uh, i just didn 't like the color or i didn 't like the way it was presented or right so we 'll find ways to still feel good about our decision um, uh and be and and feel good about ourselves and our self concept Trying to think of what that would come under. Um, that that wouldn't come under uh, insufficient deterrence. Um, I'll have to think about that. So procrastination. Um, you know, here here's something else to think about. Um, a lot of this stuff goes against the. Uh, the dominant paradigm of the time. Remember, we talked about the psychodynamic perspective that influences, that likely influenced Fessinger. But what other perspective was active from about the 1900 to the 1950s before, or sort of concurrently with psychodynamic? Behaviorism, remember? And so so Fessinger is coming out of this period of behaviorism, which explained all of our behaviors in the context of reinforcement. That our behavior is determined by the history of the contingencies of reinforcement that we've experienced. So things we've been rewarded for in the past, we will do more of in the future. So when you give somebody a reward, According to uh, operant conditioning, they should want to do it more in the future. Um, if, and, but here, um, this small deterrent, um, you know, these, these processes don't really match the concepts of behaviorism and operant conditioning. And so it's starting to kind of go against the notions of how this really works. When you give somebody a lot of money, for example, to do something somehow that acts not as a reward or a reinforcement, but some kind of a deterrent to doing that in the future. They didn't wanna do it and they can't explain it away, right? So, um, so there's some really bizarre kinds of things that they're, that they're seeing that don't match up with the previous models of um, explaining behavior. Um, it's not, uh, not too often that uh, that I uh, get to pull out the uh, the Bible in class um, so this is a uh, this is from an online, Bible source and so this is from the book of Genesis and it's the story of Adam and Eve and so uh, some of you probably know where I'm going with this so uh, verse 15 the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it let me take a picture of this for the podcast Okay. Uh, so he took him to the garden of began to work it and take care of it. Uh, and the Lord God commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So, um, so we've got this tree. We've got this guy. And the guy says, um, if I'm good... I'm not going to eat this uh, fruit from this tree, right? So then we go on to uh, the next chapter, chapter three. And uh, in chapter three, uh, so the woman comes along, and uh, or the serpent comes along, and he says, uh, you know, you really should eat from the eat from this tree. You know, it's really yummy uh and so uh, she saw the uh, fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it oh boy um and then so uh so the guy he- he- hears about it finds out about it um and uh uh when the woman saw chapter 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good. Take another shot of this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and so on and so forth. Um, then uh, the Lord God comes around and uh, they hid from Lord God, uh, among the trees in the garden. Uh, and, the guy, and the man says, Adam says, um, uh, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because you're naked. I was naked, so I hid. Who told you you were naked? Uh, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree, and I ate it. ding 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 cognitive dissonance dissonance justification um, he's reduced you know reduction of dissonance by saying well it wasn't my decision she did it right i'm a good i'm a good person still you know i got this from her and then so <laughs> so so now the woman has this um, you know at eve she has this whole dissonance going on and uh, so now in, ch- in verse 13 she says uh uh the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. You know? So it's this kind of, well, 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 uh, I'm really still a good person. You know, I was just influenced by bad things. right? And so these are ways to kind of keep ourselves feeling good about ourselves, even in the context of what, um, you know, the reality that I'm behaving badly. And so I can maintain that good sense of myself by saying, well, it really wasn't me. It was this other person. Um so it's not you know it's not something that uh you know that we just come up with in the nineteen fifties. It's um you know it's it's in humans, yeah. This is how we work. Yeah. Um okay, any uh questions, ideas, comments?
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Um okay, uh, that's all I've got for you today. See? I did it. Um, So I will uh, see you on Tuesday.